Our scripture lesson came from Luke's Gospel, the 16th chapter and the 19th through the 31st verses. And it reads as follows. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. As a prognosticator of the gospel, it is my singular duty to use all of the resources that I have available to me to lay out the case for why we have faith in God and why we share in the hope of his finished work through Jesus Christ. Sunday after Sunday, I and pastors all over the world develop creative and clever ways to make the case that what you are experiencing in your lives right now is but a blip compared to what you will experience throughout eternity. We make compelling and often convincing arguments all designed to appeal to your intellect in the hopes that something will be said that causes you to change your direction and choose a path that we believe will lead you to salvation and to a more virtuous way of life we often fail. We often fail because some people never accept the offering of the free gift of salvation. We often fail because some people like what we say, but not enough to change their lifestyles. We often fail because most people never repent but the bottom line is this, is that we often fail because most people just don't believe. 
There are many reasons why people do not believe what we as pastors tell them. And while I can give you several reasons for that, I will tell you that the chief reason why people choose not to believe is because they are more consumed with the cares of this world. This holds true whether you are a person of means or not. So today, as I try to be true to my calling, I want to take a look at a story that may or may not be familiar to you in the hopes that with the help of the Holy Spirit, my argument will not be in vain. And someone here may be convinced that what the Bible tells us is in fact true. I've therefore titled this message, I Am Persuaded. Now, to persuade, as a dictionary tells it, is to prevail on a person to do something by advising or urging. It is to induce belief by appealing to the reason or to understanding. In other words, to persuade is to convince. Now, nowhere do we see this effort to persuade and to convince more at work than in the field of advertising and marketing. People who study marketing, they, they know that their job is to try to persuade someone into believing what they have to offer is something that they need so badly that they're willing to pay for it, right? That's the role of the marketer, the advertiser. And to accomplish this, the marketers and advertisers, they will use catchy images and, and phrases in order to get into your minds and into your psyche so that there's a sense of familiarity with an identification with their products that you will spend money for it. Mm -hmm. Musical jingles, for example, is one of those most powerful ways that, 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 that folks, that they're able to convince you to like what it is that they offer. Let, 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 me, let me illustrate. Let me see if it's going to work in here. Now, you gotta, you, now I'm going to do something, and I want to see where you go with it, all right? <laughs> the best part of waking up. Now, <laughs> now, you make my point. It just came out because you're so familiar with it. You see, you are persuaded. Now, what happens is every time you decide that you need a cup of coffee, Folgers might come to mind. Why? Because these marketers and these advertisers have done a great job in persuading you. Now, sadly, these high-powered marketing methods have also made their way into the church. Turn on the television or radio to any given Christian station, and you will quickly see that you hear more about how you can get your blessings from God if you simply just sow a seed. Number of ministries you hear on TV or even on the radio, they'll tell you, sow this amount and you're going to get this from God. Everywhere you turn, and you pay attention, if you pay attention close enough, you hear more about their appeal for money than you hear about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know this as the prosperity gospel. And I'm amazed that this day, even in this day and age, people still end up falling for this kind of con job. Now, to be clear, God can use anything to bring his people into the kingdom. But for me personally, I would like to think that people are getting blessed because Jesus, because of Jesus and not because they sowed a seed into a particular ministry. 
even here at Allen Temple, you all know the work that we do here and you see how God is moving in the lives of everyone and the hearts of the people who support this ministry. But make no mistake about it. We only lift up and we will only exalt Jesus in this church. It is because of Jesus and him alone why we are experiencing any blessings that is coming our way. Yes, someone may sow a good seed. Yes, someone may bring some blessing through whatever skills and gifts they have. But make no mistake about it. All credit in this church goes to Christ and Christ alone. Money helps, but Jesus saves. Be that as it may, the prosperity gospel and the craft of marketing and advertising is one of those ways that is used to persuade people. Now, as I said before, to persuade is to, is to induce belief and by appealing to reason or, or understanding. And our text today gives us an interesting perspective on exactly what I am talking about. But first, let, let, let's set up the context. I won't read the text again, it's in entirety, but suffice it to say, the story begins by telling us about two men. One rich, the other man poor. The rich man in the text has no name. And by contrast, the name of the poor man is given, Lazarus. This is important to note because the name Lazarus is the only name that Jesus has given to anyone in his parables. And the name Lazarus in the Hebrew is El-Azar, which actually means God has helped. The name Lazarus means God has helped. And if we know nothing else about the text today, here is something I want you know to be true. God helps the poor. If you get nothing else out of today, know this to be true. God helps the poor. Now, in his lifetime, the, the rich man, he, he, he displayed his wealth ostentatiously. It tells us he's got beautiful clothes and, 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 and he, he had lavish feasts. This rich man was rich. Amen. Conversely, Lazarus, the one who God's, God helps, is, is, he's covered with sores. And he was hungry. And, and listen, he had dogs licking his sores, which tells us and indicates to us that this man might just be leprous. The sad picture here is that even the dogs showed more compassion on this poor man than the rich man who was unnamed. What a sad, sad sight. Now, according to the story, both men died. And we're told that Lazarus is carried to an honored place, which is termed Abraham's bosom. Abraham, as you recall, he was a friend of God. He was the father of Israel. But by contrast, this rich man who had all of these wonderful things in life, he found himself in Hades or hell. This is a place of torment and eternal punishment. Now the rich man, while in this place of hot burning fire, Hades, he looks up and he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. And he decides now to strike up a conversation with Abraham. It's almost as if he still doesn't even really acknowledge Lazarus. 
So he strikes up a conversation now with Abraham. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus. In other words, Lazarus, you're still my servant, even though you are in the bosom of Abraham. I am in a place of torment. I have nothing. I am a nobody right now. And you, Lazarus, as much as I am feeling all of this hellfire around me, I still cannot find it in my heart to see you. So he reaches out to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, Send Lazarus to go and to, and, to, and to dip his finger in the water and to come and, and in other words, Abraham, send Lazarus to come and serve me. It is interesting to me that you can be in a place where you have nothing and still think you are in control. I say this to you because, and let me digress here for a moment. I don't remember which president or who said it years ago. But he said these words. If you can convince, if you can convince the poorest white person that he is still better than the best possible, most educated Negro, you don't have to beg him for money. He will empty it for you. See, when privilege comes in your way and you think that because you have something or you're accustomed to a certain lifestyle, that no matter what your station in life, you think you are better than people, if even but for the color of your skin, then I'm telling you, my brothers and my sisters, if that is your story, then believe me when I tell you, do not, do not sleep on God because your place has been reserved for eternal torment. Be careful how you look down on God's people, especially, especially after God tells us that he helps the poor, the marginalized, and the disenfranchised. But now, a great chasm exists between the two, which the text tells us cannot be crossed. There has now been a reversal of fortune, and I call this the great reversal. Here's what I mean. There is a poor man, and there is a rich man. Now, I'm playing on words here. There is a poor man, and there is a rich man. The poor man becomes rich. The rich man becomes horribly poor. There is a poor man on the outside, and there's a rich man on the inside. Now, the reversal is there now a poor man on the inside, and a rich man on the outside. There's a poor man with no food and a rich man with food. Then the great reversal is there is a poor man with a feast and a rich man who can't even find a drop of water. There is a poor man licked by dogs. There's a rich man surrounded by dignitaries and, 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 and secretaries of state and advisors, mm -hmm. chiefs of staff. Mm -hmm. There is a rich man surrounded by dignitaries, and there is a poor man surrounded, surrounded now by the dignitaries of heaven, and a rich man isolated among the worst of the dogs, even in the Ukraine. There's a poor man who suffers and a rich man who is satisfied. Then there's a rich man who suffers and a poor man who is satisfied. Are, are, are you getting the picture yet? There's a poor man humiliated, a rich man honored, 
Then there's a poor man honored and a rich man humiliated. I'm going somewhere. There's a poor man who wants a crumb. And there's a rich man who feasts. Then there's a rich man who feasts. There's a, there's a rich man now who feasts and a poor man who wants anything, even a crumb. Finally, there's a poor man who has a name and a rich man who has no name. So it goes on and on. And we can play with this parallel as often as we want. But I want you to get the picture. There is a great reversal that is coming. And I want to get into the meat of this text so we can understand why in the wisdom of God that this reversal takes place. Now having exhausted all the possibilities of helping himself, this rich man finally begins to think of others. This time he's thinking of his brothers. He shows still no concern for his neighbors and certainly none for the poor of those on the wrong side of the tracks. Watch carefully what he says. He says, he says then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man has five brothers, but he should have had six. That is the one he did not acknowledge, which was Lazarus. Now the story finds its apex when Abraham replies that they already have Moses and the prophets to warn them. The reference here to Moses and the prophets is really important, brothers and sisters, and it is significant and it is not to be missed. I want to make sure you understand what's going on here in the text. Throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, God has been executing his plan of redemption by warning and leading his people towards repentance and holy living. God has not stopped even today, warning his people to repent and to turn towards holy living. He has admonished Israel and to a lesser extent those of us who believe him to care for the poor and the widows and the orphans as a way of demonstrating our devotion and commitment to God. It is the reason why we do the midnight run. It is the reason why we take the stuff that we take to Guatemala. It's the reason why we are trying to start the breakfast program. It's the reason why we're doing all these things in the church because we want to make sure that we are honoring our commitment to God. It's not about making us look like we're good or that we are better than any church. It's saying that we understand that we have a responsibility to do what God has called us to do. In fact, if we read this past week, we've been fasting and we've been asked to look at the, 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 the book of Isaiah, the 58th chapter, and here's what it says, quite briefly. It says, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. In other words, shout it out. Tell the people. Warn the people. For a day after day, they seek me out. They come to church Sunday after Sunday. They seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and that they have not forsaken the commands of the Lord. 
You ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come and to be in your midst and in your presence. You have fasted and you say, oh God, look at how good we are. We are fasting for you. Well, God says, wait a second, wait a second. You think that's humbling yourself? You think that that is how you please me? You think that you can be pious and sit in your fancy thrones and on your fancy seats? You think that that's what I want? The Lord says, this is not the kind of fasting that I want. I want you to loose the chains of injustice. I want you to, to, to untie the cords of the yoke. I want you to set the oppressed free. I want you to break every chain. This is what I want. I want you to share your food with the hungry. I want you to provide the wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them and do not turn your way to turn away from your own flesh and blood. That's what God is asking for from us. So you and your fancy castles with your wonderful cars, your Acuras and your BMWs. It's good and it's nice. But if you think that God has blessed you because you're so good or you're so wonderful, you think that by just putting on nice clothes on a Sunday and giving a little something in the offering, you're saying to God, look at me, God, how wonderful I am. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if we leave people on the sidewalk to dogs to lick their wounds. I'm just telling you. The point is, God is calling his people to repentance, to, to a turning away from wicked living, to think of the less fortunate, to care for those who are in need, to simply not look the other way in the face of injustice, to bring liberty to the poor, and to set the captives free. This has been the call in the life of every person who comes to faith in God, including us. And from the time of Moses until now, we still have not listened. So because of that, a huge chasm exists between those of us who will care for the poor and those of us who continue to live business as usual. We tend to care more about our stuff and our own self-interests than we do about the poor in Haiti and in our communities, the undocumented people at the border, the genocides all over the world, the victims of hurricane in Puerto Rico and the Bahamas. And it is a sad, sad commentary on this nation and an indictment against the church that even dogs are more compassionate to lick the leprous wounds of the Lazaruses of this world, the people that God helps. But the Bible, but the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, it references that it's warning to us. It's a warning and a roadmap for getting us back to the very heart of God. It is God's blueprint for us to avoid the inevitable consequences of the choices that we are making right now in our lives, which by all accounts has, hear me clearly, brothers and sisters, eternal implications. The choices that we're making right now in this house 
today. The choices that you are making right now in your lives. The moment you go through these doors and you go on to your lives, the choices that you're making right now has eternal implications. So, so the rich man knew enough that he did not pay attention to Moses and the prophets. He knew that when he was talking to Abraham, I did not pay attention to Moses and the prophets. And how do I know this to be true? Because of what he said to Abraham. He said, listen, yes, they have Moses and the prophets, Abraham, but they're not going to listen to them. Why? Because I had Moses and the prophets, and I did not listen to them either. No, Father Abraham. They won't listen to Moses and the prophets. But, 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 but hear me, as I'm thirsty, as I'm dying in this hell torment, hear me, hear me, Father Abraham. Hear me from way across the chasm that I cannot cross. Hear me. It, it, maybe, just maybe, since they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, just maybe, just, just maybe, if someone from the dead rises and goes to them, Maybe they will listen. So in his mind, he's saying, send Lazarus from the dead. Because if someone comes from the dead, they will listen. Wow. To which Abraham replies in a very, very sad, sad way in the text. Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. They will not be persuaded. They will not be convinced. They will not listen, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, here's my question, church, as I prepare to close. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Is it true that, that if someone rose from the dead to warn people about the reality of heaven and hell that they would not believe? Is that true? Wait, wait a second. Is it true that if someone rose from the dead and appeared to over 500 people in 40 days that had witnessed or at least had heard about his crucifixion that they would not believe? Is that, is that true? Is it true that if someone rose from the dead and allowed himself to be touched by a doubtful disciple to which he would remark, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe that, that, that they would still not believe? Is that true? Now let me make it more personal because I'm not sure if you're hearing me. Is it true that if someone rose from the dead to warn people about the reality of heaven and hell that we would not believe? Is it true that if someone rose from the dead and charged us to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that we would not believe? Is, is that true? Is that true that if someone rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God the Father from which he shall come again and judge the quick and the dead, that we, me and you, that we would not believe? And is that true that if someone rose from the dead and declared that all authority that has been given to him 
to which he now gives to us to trample on serpents that we would not believe. My brothers and my sisters, the one who rose from the dead is Jesus. Who is the resurrection and the life. The one through which no one can come to the Father except through him. And the answer is true. Yes, it is true that even as Jesus rose from the dead, many of us still do not believe. But here is what I need to tell you today, quite clearly and quite simply as I can, to this sacred assembly. Jesus is the only way. He is the door for the sheep, Reverend Brown. He is the gateway of deliverance. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him, watch this, will never go hungry. And whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And as he declared in the book of John, the 8th chapter and the 58th verse, he said these words as the rich man laid in Hades, as he stayed in hell, and he looked across and he saw Abraham. He saw Abraham. This is what Jesus says as he declared in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He is God and God alone. And he is the one that has been appointed judge over the living and the dead. For there is only one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is our only hope for redemption in this life. In this story, in this story. God's eternal judgment has everything to do with how we handle our wealth today. With all the good things that God has given to us in this life, we have a responsibility to attend to those who are less fortunate. Even if you think you don't have anything, listen, you can share your faith. But the message has been clearly stated. Like the rich man's five brothers, we have been given all the warnings we need. We have Moses. We have Joshua. We have Isaiah. We have Jeremiah. We have Jonah. We have Zechariah. We have Jose. We have Malachi. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And my brothers and my sisters, yes, we have Paul, and we even have Jesus, who himself was raised from the dead. So what more do you need in order to just believe? What more do you need from God in order to close that great chasm between what you want and what God wants from you? 
What more do you need in order to be convinced and persuaded? Well, as for me, as for me, I can tell you, I need no other argument. And I cling to the words of the Apostle Paul as he stated in Romans, the 8th chapter, and the 38th through the 39th verse. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What are you going to do? Will you believe Jesus who rose from the dead and therefore choose to close that great chasm today? That is a question that only you can answer. But I will tell you, my brothers and my sisters, as we prepare for our benediction today, let's make it crystal clear for everyone. We are not all going to live here forever. We are going to spend eternity somewhere. And it may be that that place we're going to be be living in may be in Hades, hell, or in the bosom of Abraham. I'm not your judge, and I don't know where you will spend your eternity. But here is what I do know. I do know that for any person that calls on the name of Jesus, you will be in paradise. You will be with him where he is. Why? Because he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be there also. As a matter of fact, in my father's house yes. are many mansions. And, and, and oh, by the way, if, if it were not so, I would have told you. But, but, but I go to prepare a place. That you now, my brothers and my sisters, members and, and friends of Allen Temple, because you are caring for the poor, because you have a missions offering with a heart towards God, your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world mission, and all of what you put your hands to do for the people of God, because Sunday after Sunday you pray for those who are here, and we pray for each other as we go through the struggles of our lives. We are all Lazaruses. And so we know that if we make our confession to God and call on the name of Jesus, we will be safe in Abraham's bosom, looking down on those who had the opportunity, who never took advantage of Moses and the prophets. And even if someone were raised from the dead, they still would not believe. Church, let me be clear again. Our heart's desire, and I say our meaning my wife and I, our heart's desire is that you all come to the place where you believe in Jesus for yourself. 
You can't rest on anyone else's faith. This is for you and you alone. Jesus says he doesn't even need you to be the greatest whatever you want to be. All you need to do is to rest in him. For our righteousness is as but filthy rags. But thanks be to God that when he died on Calvary's cross, he said those words that I just love so much. Tetelestai. It is finished.